So uh, everyone has their kind of, quote, remember when moments these days. You know, the, the last normal life experiences that we recall before everything changed and the apocalypse set in. And um, if I'm thinking about mine, mine is retrievable by a photo. And uh, I took it in John Paul Jones Arena here in Charlottesville, Virginia, about two weeks before everything went on lockdown. And in the picture, you can see there's one second remaining on the scoreboard. Virginia 52, Duke 50. Virginia's at the line to close out the game, and they did. But it was just a perfect day. Virginia was definitely the undisputed underdog last season. And speaking personally, I have loathed the Duke basketball program since infancy. I'm not alone there, I know. And not to mention it was my birthday weekend, and tickets to a Duke game are always impossible to find. The picture, if, if you look at it, um, it's, it's less of the court, and it's more of the crowd and the scoreboard, which feels kind of like a bleak harbinger now seeing so many people, like super ecstatic people, all in one place, time's running out, and now it just feels dizzying and so, so sad. <laughs> and then two weeks later, we would find out that the ACC tournament wasn't happening, and then a week after that, that the NCAA tournament wasn't happening, and deeper and deeper down the hole we went. And the more I've thought about it as we've been putting together this sports issue, COVID-19 did not cross many Americans' minds as the threat that it is, was, is, until the sports world came to a halting stop. We had all the outrageous tallies on the news and warnings from public health officials, but none of that could communicate as effectively as ESPN did when all the live sports, every show, Everything was taken off and replaced with reruns. And so, in essence, sports was the first celebrity to die of the virus. Maybe you're not a sports fan, and that sounds a little bit extreme, but it's crazy. I mean, 75% of Americans say that they are NFL fans. You know, Sports isn't just a 24-7 cultural force, but it provides Americans with this feeling of normalcy, this, these feelings of fun, the inspiration of dreams in every home in America. Its persuasive power is undeniable. Of course, I mean, it is strange that professional sports would represent normalcy to us when most of us who are watching are several degrees of talent and several jars of queso and several cases of beer removed from the demigods that are jumping and tackling and swinging and dunking on TV in front of us. We have almost nothing in common. Nonetheless, if we are fans, and so many of us are, we do somehow know the players, at least by proxy. And we begin to expect things from them. We follow them. And no one knows the weight of these expectations better than the athletes themselves, which has led me to think quite a bit about Richard Sherman. Back in 2014, 
people weren't exactly surprised that Richard Sherman said what he said after the NFC championship. Everyone knew he was a guy who had a big mouth, and everyone knew that there was some off-the-field feud that he had with Michael Crabtree. Uh, If you're not familiar, Richard Sherman, famous defensive back for the San Francisco 49ers now, but in 2014, he was on the Seattle Seahawks. Michael Crabtree, wide receiver uh, for the opposing team, uh, the 49ers at the time. And uh, so anyways, they have this off-the-field feud, and um, Richard Sherman makes this winning defensive play. He prevents Michael Crabtree from this end zone grab that surely would have ended the Seahawks season. Um, And instead, they're going to the Super Bowl. So everyone's flipping out. It's a big deal. So everyone knew that Sherman would have something to say about that in the postgame interview. But no one expected to hear said what was actually said, you know, right there on the field with Aaron Andrews, the entire nation watching. And it goes something like this. Let's send you down to the field and Aaron Andrews. Joe, thank you so much. Richard, let me ask you the final play. Take me through it. Well, I'm the best corner in the game. When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. Don't you ever talk about me. Who was talking about you? Crabtree, don't you open your mouth about the best. Or you're going to shut it for you real quick. L.O.B. All right, before... You can still find the clip on YouTube pretty easily. Um, in a sense, genius marketing. The interview made Sherman and the rest of his defensive cohort, who was called the Legion of Boom, the talk of the Super Bowl that year. People wondered, who on earth was this guy, this articulate Stanford grad who had grown up in Compton? And what is he doing making such a scene? Why isn't he acting like a Stanford grad? People questioned his sportsmanship. People lambasted him on Twitter. And so, right before the Super Bowl, like any professional athlete who's kind of facing a media firestorm, Sherman apologizes for the interview. He does a whole bunch of air-clearing interviews, including one with CNN's Rachel Nichols. And he says all the usual stuff, you know, that his interview took away from the team's win, blah, blah, blah. But then he said something that was genuinely reflective, and it's really stuck with me since as we've been putting together the sports issue in particular. Here's what he said. I'm not going to fight anybody and embarrass myself, my family, or my organization. There's no need to be a barbaric human being like that. But on the field, we are playing a very barbaric sport. And that's where I take out all my animosity and anger and frustration on the field with disciplined football, sound football. It takes a different kind of person to be able to turn that switch on and off and be able to step into the ring or step onto the field and be the intense, incredible, focused, and I guess kind of angry human being that you have to be to be successful in sports. You have to turn that off and treat the non-sports world totally different. That's why it crashes sometimes. If you catch me in a moment on the field 
when I'm still being as competitive as I can be, then my responses aren't going to be as articulate, as smart, as charismatic. I'm still doing everything I need to be a winner. And how true is that quote, not just in the realm of sports, but in any realm when competition is the nature of the game. But this is the perpetual problem of sports. Regardless of the type of sport, regardless of the athlete, while you still have the virtues of you know kindness or teamwork or humility, um, and those are central to the rules of any sport, the game is still a game. You're still out there in between the lines trying to beat out the other team. And so you still are, to some degree, required to be a barbarian. And so as we've been putting this issue together, that's the question that we wonder. Where would the gospel message, a message to those who have lost, to those who continue losing, where does that message enter into the world of kill or be killed? To what degree does the message of forgiveness, of grace, reach the wide world of sports? This is what we were trying to uncover in this issue. And to just give you a taste of what we found, I wanted to show you three interviews um, with some of the voices that show up in the issue. Anna Catherine Clemens is the first you'll hear from. She's a freelance sports journalist. She's written for ESPN for years and years and so many other outlets. Uh, she also teaches sports journalism at UVA. Christian Hasoy is one of the most legendary skateboarding world champions of all time. And now he's a pastor in Southern California. And then there's Jason Webster, who was at one point an NFL cornerback, and now for the past 10 years has been the Atlanta Falcons chaplain. With all of these, there is the discovery that within sports, because sports encapsulates human beings who are living a life, there is the need for a message that spans wider than when or lose. So stay with us and let's get on the field. Okay, so you're a freelance writer. Yes. Uh, how did you get to writing about sports? So I grew up in Chapel Hill, a huge sports fan. Mm -hmm. I went to all the college basketball games and played a lot of sports. So sports journalism had always interested me, but it was more like the stories behind the athletes and the coaches. And um, I've always loved sports because I think sports is, can be a great unifier. You know, you can be homeless on the streets of Charlottesville, or you can be Jim Ryan, and you can both cheer for the Cavaliers with the same fervor and passion. And I love that about sports. So I went to graduate school for journalism, and the first class I took was sports journalism, taught by an adjunct professor who had written for Sports Illustrated, Jack Falla, great man, no longer with us, but great man. And I just loved it right from the start. He brought in guest speakers from all around the industry and just hearing their experiences reporting and writing about sports really drew me in. I also, to be honest, there aren't many women 
writing in sports and there were even less in 2004. And so that challenge actually really appealed to me. Um, there were more women in sports who were on television, but very few women in the clubhouses and locker rooms writing about sports. I'm not like a, you know, some people just live and breathe the statistics, but I love all the different themes of life that can be brought out through sports. I mean, you, you have like the dream job, like so many people think like this would be the coolest life ever to go travel, like, and you get to actually, you get to know some of like the big deal athletes on a personal level. I mean, what are the different kinds of sports reporters? Are there like, so there's like the beat reporter who writes every, after every game and you don't do that. No, I've done a little of that, but that's not primarily what I do. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, so beat writers pretty much cover the team and that's, you know, their job is to really get to know the athletes and the coaches of that team and to tell the stories of each individual player. And then of course, every game. And that never appealed to me only because (laughs) I just worried I would get tired of that team, which I feel badly saying that, but, um, I always like stories. And I tell my students this, that are more tangentially tied to sports. And so For that reason, I was much more interested in features and profiles. And when I was with ESPN full-time, I mean, I certainly did some straight reporting. Now, sort of what I do as a freelancer, I mean, you would call that more of like an enterprise reporter or a national reporter, or if you were, you know, at a specific place, a senior writer. And that is more, because I also write some outside of sports, it just sort of fit me better. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for the most part, you either have the beat writers, you know, you also have opinion writers, columnists who usually are at one publication and are, you know, using their <laughs> biased and own opinions and thoughts in their writing, um, which that never appealed to me either. Uh, you have to have a pretty thick skin to be a columnist. <laughs> That's never appealed to me as much. So yeah, I sort of like my niche of where I am. Um, I also really like to pitch my own ideas and usually when you're a feature and profile writer, you have a little more autonomy over what you're writing about. So um, what are you working on right now? And do you have like a favorite, a favorite story or a favorite one you're proud of? Wow. That is a hard question. Um, so we'll come back to that. Uh, so right now I am working on a couple stories. I'm working on one story for runner's world that will not come out for a while. So I'm not going to give too much away. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't worry about it. It's a, um, phenomenal young woman who is persevered through so much. And, you know, again, like the beautiful aspect of her story isn't the sports, but sports is the tie to her story, which I love. Mm -hmm. I'm working on another story for runner's world. That's actually here in Charlottesville. There's a running group called prolific that started several years ago. And it's a group that is incredibly diverse. One of the most diverse groups of runners. That's one of the reasons they started. And it was started by several black men who felt like in Charlottesville, you mostly only saw white men and women running and they really wanted to help and encourage anyone, you know, white or not white, black or brown, to get out and run. And so they have this great running group now, and they really are a community that supports each other in life. You know, so again, running is sort of the catalyst to forming this great community. Um, today, I went and ran with them and at 6 a.m., bright and early, mm. and Go one you. of the group members, 
he had just lost his aunt to cancer yesterday. And so the group mm. was running in honor of her. So it's just great. Um, and that story I sort of stumbled upon by accident on Instagram and mentioned to this editor as we were talking about this other story I'm working on. He said, well, that's a great story. And then I just did a story for Men's Health about a former NFL, longtime NFL player who decided to retire somewhat young and sell all his belongings and buy a van and sort of drive across the country and find, figure out who he is. Hmm. Um, and again, I mean, now he's become sort of a very spiritual and uh, reflective guy when before his whole life was sports. And I've done several stories with a lot of professional athletes once they finish sport, they really wrestle with what now and who am I? Yeah. Because sport is all they've known. And it's all, you know, it's what's given them drive, competition, challenge, positive reinforcement, neg, you know, you name it. And so I'm very, I'm always very fascinated by, you know, these athletes who we put on this pedestal, who we think have it all, you know, they go through a lot of the same struggles that we do. And I like to share those stories. Okay. You also teach, you teach, um, journalism classes at UVA. And, um, I want to talk about your visit from Wright Thompson, who's one of our favorite long form sports writers. But I also just wanted to ask you, like, what do you teach them? Like what's, what goes into a good story? What, um, especially the kind of story that you write, what makes journalism good journalism? Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually pitched UVA to teach this class. Just I call it sports journalism, but then its subtitle is narrative nonfiction storytelling through the lens of sport. Mm. So, you know, even in that, I want them to understand we're not just going to come in and talk about how many touchdown passes Philip Rivers threw last night. You know, like yeah. that might be intertwined with storytelling, but really I just want them to be great storytellers. Um, so they write a written feature, they produce a video feature. We do some with podcasting and audio storytelling. Um, and I always want them to see much that I have experienced in my career. Sports can be a catalyst for just so many great stories, right? And I mean, Wright Thompson is the master of that. Um, and so I want them to see the humanity in stories, the relatability, um, you know, that sometimes they can be funny, sometimes they're sad, but like, hopefully you take a reader or viewer on this journey where they can't wait to follow along and have, they think about your story afterward and they have some kind of emotional response to it. Um, and I think that really resonates with the students. You know, a lot of them, especially younger men and women now, you know, they read Twitter, they're just sort of getting these quick hits, right, of everything mm -hmm. in their life, like whatever they're interested in. And I think to really sit down and invest, you know, a lot of them haven't read long form journalism before they take my class and to really sit down and immerse yourself in a story is such a beautiful thing. And, and invariably three or four will email me at the end of every semester and say, wow, like I, now I'm reading longform.org every week and I never thought I would do that, you know? And so, and it's not all, I mean, we do a variety of things within the class. They do get to cover live events like beat reporters. So they sort of get to experience that live, you know, very quick moving um, game coverage. But I just really want them to feel like they've sort of had this awakening to great storytelling and what mm. it can be and how it can move you, you know, and how, whether you're going through the best times in your life or the worst times in your life, like sometimes just turning to great storytelling can really 
help you through whatever that moment is. I mean, it seems like you're reading the stories that you've written, a lot of where you find real life in these athlete stories is in sort of having faced suffering or adversity of some kind. Would you say that's true? I would definitely say that's true. One of the favorite stories that I've worked on is actually rerunning on ESPN today. And it ran, it initially ran in Veterans Day 2016. And it's about a former NFL player who, again, had retired, you know, had like, he wasn't, he was um, what's known as Mr. Irrelevant. When you're the very last pick in your draft class, you're called Hmm. Mr. Irrelevant. So he'd played like five years in the league. He had eventually worked up to being a starter, but you know, he wasn't like a Russell Wilson where everyone knew who he was. And so he really wrestled with who he was when he retired, struggled with drug addiction, um, like painkillers, and then met a quadriplegic in a Starbucks. And that led him to found this gym and this foundation for adaptive athletes. So a lot of like paraplegics, quadriplegics, amputees, and I just loved reporting the story because I, so I went to Dallas, um, David Vibora, the founder is incredibly just engaging, smart, interesting. He was great to work with, but then meeting these adaptive athletes who weren't professional athletes, you know, and because this was a veterans day story, we, I spoke mostly with military veterans, but um, you know, they really spoke to the power of this training center and how it had changed their life. And in the case of the four young men I profile in the piece, it, it saved their life. And, you know, that's not them being melodramatic or embellishing like that. It literally saved their life. And, you know, they were on the brink of despair and feeling like they didn't have a way out. And then they found this gym and it completely changed the trajectory of their life. And like the stories of human suffering always fascinate me. And, you know, I am, I am a Christian, so I'm rooted in the belief that, you know, God is always with you and in the best moments and the worst moments, you know, he is right beside you. Um, And I find comfort in that. And I like to share the stories of people who have seen sort of these pinnacles, right? Like Mm. the nadir and then the peak of the mountain and how they've worked through that. Right. And often for them, sports somehow helps them with that, whether it's the community brought on by sport, whether it's the actual physical transformation, whatever it is. Hmm. Um, but to see the power of that and to, to speak with people about the power of that, um, like to me, honestly, it's such a privilege, you know, to have that as, as, as my job. I'll never forget. I wrote a story about a young man who was not a professional athlete, just, you know, an everyday guy like you or me. And, he was in this horrific car accident and he almost died. I mean, if you read the story, the doctors say he died eight times because either his, um, you know, his tracheotomy hadn't worked or his heart stopped beating. Um, he just suffered massive injury from this car accident. And he was only 22 at the time and just thought, you know, as he laid in this hospital for months and months, he decided, all right, I'm going to complete an Ironman triathlon. Like that is my goal that's going to get me out of this hospital bed and, you know, out of these like suicidal thoughts of what do I have to live for anymore if I can't move my arms or my legs. So he eventually did recover. Hmm. He did complete an Ironman. And again, you know, that was just a story. It's not Stephen Curry. It's this young man named Brian Boyle, who the power again of having this goal, this athletic achievement really saved him. Um, And not only saved him, led him on a new direction in his life, but I wrote this story for ESPN and it ran 
and I was reading the comments and sort of the joke amongst writers is never read the comments, right? Because they're not always positive. But I still remember I was sitting in my desk when I worked out of ESPN, the magazine's office in New York, and I was reading the comments and someone had written, I'm sitting in my desk at work crying, reading this story. I've been in such a low point and this story has just saved my life. Thank you. Mm. And I will never forget that. And I thought, you know, if these stories that we share can have that kind of impact on readers. Like, well, of course we, we need to keep sharing them. Right. And like, we need to let people feel some kind of relatability, whether again, it's a LeBron James who, you know, I can't play basketball like LeBron James, but there's probably something in his life that he has overcome that you, Ethan, or I, Anna Catherine, Mm -hmm. or anyone can relate to, you know, or, you know, you look at the amazing philanthropy work he's doing and you think what a difference he and his are making what difference can I make like to me there's just so much you can see through sports storytelling that can really resonate it's such an aspirational kind of realm for people especially I mean I was going to say especially kids but I mean I still look up to college basketball players and and, right. and I'm like you know 15 years older than them now and but that realm is so aspirational that when an athlete steps up and says something or struggles through something that, you know, us sort of lesser mortals experience. Um, it's just such an avenue for connection. And we listen in a way that we wouldn't listen with anybody else. So can you tell us about how it was with Wright Thompson? Yes, it was great. I met him in 2008. That's how old I am. Um, <laughs> he was reporting, this was such a comedic story, which I love. Um, He was supposed to spend a day with this football player named George Selvey, who I believe is, I think he's still playing in the NFL. But at the time he was at the University of South Florida and he was a defensive end, but like had trouble keeping on all the weight he needed to keep on. He was very talented, but his coaches were always making him eat, you know, and try to gain weight and have the protein shakes, lift the weights. So Wright Thompson was going to go calorie for calorie, meal for meal for a full day with George Selvey. And I went down there to produce a video feature to accompany Wright's written story for ESPN. And so it was, first of all, it was, I mean, I felt for Wright because he was really struggling. (laughs) Like There was just so much food being consumed, but watching Wright as a storyteller and as a reporter was really, I mean, kind of like seminal for me because even though this was a lighthearted, fun story, um, just watching the way, you know, he just talked with George, you know, there wasn't anything formal or staid about this interview. They were just two guys hanging out for the day, eating together, right? And so then, I mean, and this was early in Wright Thompson's ESPN career before he sort of became this masterful storyteller Um, I think it was always in him. He just wasn't as, you know, um, celebrated, I guess, early on. And so as he's continued at ESPN, and I'm just always floored by the stories that he writes and reports, I've been teaching at UVA for six years, and I always sort of email friends and colleagues to see who would be interested in speaking to my students. And people are wonderful about it. Like whether it's athletes, you know, we just had Chris Long uh, two weeks ago speak with us, and he was great. And next week, we're going to have some major league baseball players who played at UVA. Um, But I was fortunate this semester because Wright's cousin is in my class. And so he emailed me at the beginning of the semester and said, you're teaching my cousin. I'd love to speak to your students. And I was so excited because I've always asked him to speak. And I know he's so busy, you know, that like 
it's, I take no offense when, you know, people don't have time because I know they get a lot of these requests, but Wright was so great. He may be a hero of yours, but I feel like you're doing the same kind of work. You're doing the same kind of writing. I think you're both telling sort of the human side of the achievement that comes in sports and how, even if you're sort of elite in one realm, it doesn't stop you from being human in, in the other realms. And that means that you suffer like everyone else. And that means that you also are like ripe for redemption and meaning uh, outside of, you know, these games we play. I wanted to ask you, can you just give folks a quick tease of what you ended up putting together for the, for the issue? Yes, it was, oh, it was a great project. So the story sort of looks at the intersection of faith and sports through the perspective of several different, um, either current or former professional and collegiate athletes. And what I have always found, at least when I was full-time for ESPN, it was interesting because often editors really discouraged the conversation about faith in a story. Um, you know, if you were speaking with an athlete who was very religious, um, whatever their faith affiliation was, editors would just say, we don't, you know, I don't want that in the story. And, and it's interesting because I never asked them why, you know, I don't know if that's, if they considered it polarizing or, you know, if they thought they would lose some readership, but in my experience, editors often said that. And so I would often be curious about, you know, where athletes felt like, you know, was it their faith inspiring them in sports? Was it sports inspiring them to be um, stronger in their faith, you know, sort of all these questions that you wrestle with. And, you know, often you hear an athlete after they've won a national title or the Super Bowl, and they say, you know, all the glory to God. And then you think, or at least I think, well, what about the losing team? You know, God's with them too. And so um, just, uh, I've always had interesting questions around this. And sometimes I have talked to athletes or coaches about it, including Tony Bennett, when I've interviewed him, but then you know, that's just a personal conversation that editors, for whatever reason, don't want in the piece. And so it was great and really refreshing to be able to talk to these athletes and players about their own faith and, you know, where and how it is manifested for them, how it relates to how they view what they do. You know, I thought Jay Huff, who is in the piece, had really good perspective on what faith means to him versus what basketball means, you know, and like how much value we put sometimes in sports in our life, particularly for him after Virginia's national championship and just seeing how people responded to that. Um, and you, as you and I sort of talked about, you know, for some people, they say sports is everything, right? Mm -hmm. And and their whole life hinges on whether Tom Brady throws for, you know, enough touchdowns for their fantasy team or whatever the case may be. And so it was just really interesting to talk to all these athletes about how that has played out in their own lives, you know, and sort of where their faith journey began and where are they now. And for many of them, without giving too much away, a lot of sort of their lowest points in their athletic career or times when they didn't know if it would continue is when they really leaned into their faith, you know, mm. and and they talk about that and sort mm -hmm. of, or they had these epiphany moments of like, you know, God is with me, whether I win or lose this game, you know, yeah. and, and maybe I need to be putting more into living out my Christian life rather than watching game tape. And so I loved all the conversations that I had. I mean, this was a privilege and a treat to get to work on this story. And I hope that when people read it, you know, they can sort of both identify with some of what these athletes are saying, and then also, you know, sort of 
it's a unique and sort of different take on the life and journey of each of these athletes. You know, if you followed Malcolm Brogdon, you may not know that, you know, he still sort of wrestles with his identity within basketball and, you know, is he doing what he should be doing? And, and he's such a great, I mean, off the court, you know, he does so much for now the Indianapolis community, for communities here, for his hometown. Um, he's involved with bringing clean water throughout Africa. So he, I mean, he is someone who is using his platform for, you know, to sort of live out his Christian beliefs and ideals. But all of these guys, I mean, it was just it was really great to be able to talk to them about this. Also, I will say, because often, I mean, sometimes you have to interview athletes and coaches about things that, you know, if it's just on the court and on the field, they'll answer, but they kind of just want to give you the cliche and, yeah. and hang up the phone, you know, and these, I could tell everyone I spoke with, you know, they said, thank you for asking about this. Mm -hmm. Like, I really love talking about my faith and I don't get to very often. And so I think for them too, you know, they really enjoyed being able yeah. to speak on this. Well, and you got them to be so honest too. I, I like um, Tyler Wilson, the professional baseball player, mentioned sitting in the dugout and looking looking out and seeing all of the sort of retired numbers that are out in the stands, and how he recognized one name out of all the names that were out in the in the outfield, and um, it just gave him perspective about sort of where is my identity, and if it is in this, mm -hmm. then how fleeting. And then, yeah, like you said, Brogdon, I mean, he he mentions that his faith is important to him, but he's also very honest about the fact that, like, listen, when I lace up and I play a game, like, I still sometimes struggle giving it all to God, you know, um, like it's it's still something that I'm that I'm working with and working on. So you really have a way with these athletes, getting them to talk. Well, thank you. I think I always try to find the relatability in that, like, you know, I'm never, I'm never going to play professional basketball, but you know, like at least in for this story, you know, I am also a Christian. I thought, well, when, when have I been too controlled by, you know, my earthly goals and achievements and, you know, like you're saying, you know, I want to, I want to be the best at this, or I want to do this so well when like, but that's not really why I'm here, you know? And so mm. sort of checking yourself and thinking, you know, we, we do live in such a culture and a world of wins and losses and achieve, achieve, achieve. And, you know, but that's, to me, I always come back to, and I was just saying this to a friend yesterday, you know, that I love the quote and it, I mean, it, I won't do it justice even in saying it, but that, you know, we are not put on this earth to see through each other, but to see each other through. And mm. for me, you know, that also as a Christian, that really speaks to me, but that's something I try to sort of remind myself, you know, and, as we see our very aspirational environment out there, particularly for athletes, you know, I mean, they are told from day one, particularly when you become a professional, like your worth is determined based on how well you do, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then to be able to really have right, honest conversations with them about your faith and, you know, how you sort of reconcile or even intertwine your faith, your professional sport, you know, and again, as we talked about earlier, this question of, well, when are you done and what now, you know, and mm -hmm. I think faith comes, comes in there as well so much for these athletes and coaches. And so, yeah, I mean, I feel like we could, we could do like a eight part series here and yeah, totally. barely scratch the yeah. surface, you know? <laughs> I know. Well, I'm just so grateful that you were a part of this AK and um, I'm so thrilled for our readers to get a chance to see um, not only your storytelling, but to hear from, 
Yeah. Some of these, like, you know, people at the very top talk about sort of the things that, that we talk about and struggle with and um, think through in our own lives. So thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. It was my pleasure. I loved it. Christian Hassoy. Hey, David. How are you doing? How's quarantine been for Christian Hassoy? Oh, it's great. I'm at the skate park right now with a bunch of, like, whole carload of kids and uh, got my umbrella. I'm in the sun. It's nice. California. This is a global impact that we've had that I think has been a great shaking for people's faith. The tragedies are horrific, you know what I mean? The deaths, the, you know, the political climate, like it's all just division. And, you know, what Christ does, it brings unity. And it brings a a sense of hope in a world, obviously, you know, it's scriptural, you know, he'll give us peace that the world won't give us. And we have hope that the world doesn't have. And, and this is where we're really, you know, put on kind of like where the rubber meets the road in our lives. You know, how are we going to, you know, react to all this? And so, I don't know. It, I've been to prison for five years. So for me, you know, and I look at people who have been outside their whole lives, because I know what it's like to be free, you know, yeah. and live a whole life and do a lot of things and be accomplished in many areas and travel the whole world before all this happened to me. And so when I finally got into a place like that, I was able to see what matters and what I can appreciate and what are the things that you really, you know, take for granted in this world. And so for me, I have a different perspective than most others that have been to prison you know, that have found Jesus or had a relationship with God that had to deal with, you know, prison, but not many, you know, Mm. have the same experience I have because I didn't know God at all until I went to prison. I heard you say that uh, your hardships will be your trophies in life. It almost sounds like that's, that's proven true in this. Oh, yeah. It's like a blessing in disguise. You know, when you think of things that happen that you would never volunteer for or want to sign up for but you have to go through it like my incarceration was definitely not voluntary but if i would have known what i would have gotten from it i would i would tell all my friends they should sign up for it when you're with christ and christ is in you it, it it will be exactly what it's meant to be wow I remember you saying in the in the documentary, you start laughing, and they say, "Who laughs behind bars?" And you say, "Men that are free." And that's uh, I've used that at, in church before. Actually, I've shown that clip uh, because I think it's such a powerful testimony to um, God's work in your life, or in and in, in, in the life of the world. Who would who would who would say it's such a uh, contradictory uh, sentiment, and yet? there you are so clearly full of joy in the midst of a crazy circumstance. And it's a revelation that you have of salvation, of forgiveness, of God's grace, his mercy, and just the love of God that, that makes you whole. Cause I always say, you know what? My life was like a bucket, you know, my heart, I had this empty void and it was like a bucket. 
and it was full of holes. I kept putting everything that the world had to offer in it, thinking that that was going to satisfy me, that was going to gratify me, that was going to give me satisfaction, and it all was just draining out and draining out until God's love was put in, and it filled up, and now it's overflowing, and, and God's love never ends, and His mercy never ends, His grace never ends, and it's knowing what Jesus did for you on the cross. That's how simple it is. It's knowing that he took your place for the sins that you bear. That's why I can forgive myself. See what I mean? Like most people can forgive everybody, but they can't forgive themselves because they always remember what they did, you know? And and for me, it was that moment of clarity, knowing that I'm no longer that person. I'm dead to my sins. I got baptized and I buried the old man and he is in the grave and that I have this new life. Christian, it seems like you're not the only guy from that sort of classic skater scene that's really that's come and met the Lord in a powerful way. I mean, I just have heard Steve Caballero and uh, other guys are, uh, there's an openness to that. What do you make of that? I'm like the most unlikely to get saved in the skateboard world if you were to ask me. How's this? Eddie Elguera, who's pastor Eddie Elguera, Elgato, he preaches at C3. He has a church in Palm Springs. And I remember him. He's like the only one in our whole industry that was saved. And he was doing like a Bible study at Lake Owen. I think this is like 1991. I came there to do the demo. He's like, you want to come to our Bible study? And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm going to find a party. <laughs> and we're in the we're in the mountains. We're like in the mountains, like there's nothing around and I'm like, no, nah, I'm gonna find it I'm gonna go look for some some girls or a party or something. And I remember not going. And I had a bunch of herb and I was just hanging out and I was just like most people, just trying to have a good time, you know, feeling like you're important or feeling like, you know, you knew it all because you you knew how to have a good time or you're good at something. I was a great skateboarder. So it's like, you know, those things can consume your, your time and your mind and, and what you're focused on. And I didn't grow up in church. I never read a Bible until I got to prison. And so for me, there was no, like, I just thought Jesus, Buddha, Mary, you know, all this was kind of like just all lumped up in the same thing of like being good people. I believed in karma where I was just a good person. And I thought if there was a heaven, I would go there. And what's sad is most Christians think that way, you know, today, like I'll ask, you know, at youth groups, I'll ask in church, I'll say, Hey, what do you think it is that God wants you? how, How do you think you'll be able to go to heaven? What do you need to do? And they'll all say, be a good person. Love everybody, yeah. you know what I mean, and 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 I'm like, you know what? This is why you know, reading the Word, being educated in the in the foundation principles of our faith are so important to be preached. That it's by grace alone that we're saved. We cannot earn salvation. That's why you cannot perform to get to. You can't be sober enough. You can't be uh, honest enough. You can't be, you know, faithful enough. It has nothing to do with your works. Which is incredible to hear you say, because performance was such a part of your life. 
and you were so from the outside you were a great performer and so what people want to bring that into church and they and and it sounds like you're saying that god's grace is is different than that well i mean i love james it says you know what uh it's by faith you've been saved through grace not of yourselves and then he goes but i'll show you my 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 faith through what i do and and you're like by my works and you're like so that's the byproduct of what the blood of Jesus and the washing of your sins and the understanding the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God. How do you nurture your relationship with God today? How does Christian historic, with all the skating and the adulation? I say there's three things you need to do. Okay, and you'll grow in your faith. Read the Bible. And that's how you hear God's voice. That's how you, you understand the very nature, the personality, the character of God, and that's how he speaks to you. Then you need to pray. You need to speak to God. You need to share everything, all the things you go through, all the things you want, all the things you desire, all the things you struggle with. And as you talk to God, he will speak back to you and then get connected into a strong Bible-believing church. And and I believe that, you know, spirit-filled, you know, churches are are so important in our time today. And that's the experience yeah. that I've had since I've been a pastor for 15 years, is that that's where the power is. The power is in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. In skateboarding, punk rock, thrasher parties, skateboard industry, me, you know, trying to figure out how to shine bright in this industry. I've been through so much in my life that it, it's pretty incredible that, you know, the devil's like, it's all there for you, Christian. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's really good. But I see people's hearts being open to accept God's grace and love. And I have no desire. Like, I've got 20 years, six months of sobriety, right? Never in my yeah. entire life did I ever think that I would have even been sober. Like, And for me, that's yeah. a powerful, powerful testimony to my friends, because they know I'm the one that taught them how to, you know, roll joints. I taught them how to, you know, do everything when it comes to that. When they know that I'm not judging them, when they know that I'm not being critical because I'm like sober and they're not, it's the grace of God. So for me, it's like being in the midst of that is when... (laughs) (laughs) What... You can see someone skating right next to you. They're lighting off fire, fireworks right here in the park. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know, I was, I was wondering because yeah. you know you've been you've been really open with your history with addiction. Like, what what do you think? How do you, how could the church do better with addicts? What's your wisdom there when it comes to addiction and, and the gospel? Well, it's it's an easy place to uh, kind of like share, you know how God can actually transform your life because it's an identity. You could completely see where, you know, you're trying to use uh, uh, dependencies to cover up something. It's never usually for fun, even though they think it is, but it's usually them trying to find their identity and trying to fit in. It's all peer pressure. I was the, I was the best peer pressure person around. That's why I kind of know how, how, you know, it works. I mean, I didn't get saved until my 30s. 
and I was already a world champion at 17 in 84 and 85. So until 2000 was when I got saved. And I already went through, I don't know how many times of like trying to discover myself looking everywhere. And finally drugs was the one that I thought I'd find it. And of course that led me to prison, which ended up, you know, me finally going, you know what? I, I've tried everything else. That's all right. I tried everything else. Nothing worked. And I opened up the Bible and I said, God, if you're real. And then I just said, and immediately I read Kings and it was where uh, David was charging his son Solomon. But if you'll follow the days all of his life and, and, and follow God's precepts, his ordinances, he'll prosper in all that he does. And I was like, where have I been? And I, another thing I always say is I say I was searching for love in all the wrong places. I looked yeah. everywhere, and I looked everywhere. I looked everywhere in every all the good things, being a world champion, being, you know, popular, having, you know, girls, a lot of girls, the finest girls, to the money, to uh, power, to, you know, um, being cool in Hollywood to, and there's nothing else left, really. Just more of it. You know what I mean? Right. You can only get more of it. There's nothing cooler than I think whatever I did, especially like being a world champion at something. Like, what? how come that doesn't satisfy? And I always, yeah. you know, tried to put my thumb on it, and I just never could, but I always searched for it, and then I found God's love, the agape love, which is true love. And everyone's searching for true love, you know, true. I love that true love. And the only true love is God's love. To think that I didn't know that, <laughs> it just trips me out. And that's why you, we need to continue to preach God's love. And when you do it, and when people are in the midst of their addiction, they get it. Yeah. Because I've been there, you know, loving these people who are stuck in addiction is all they want. Yeah. They want to know that, you know, there's a replacement. How's this? There's something that replaces what they're giving up. Because why give up drugs and alcohol and all that for nothing? And I always say, yeah. man, you're giving it up for love, joy, peace, contentment, purpose, passion to, to, to you know, want to be used by God to help somebody else get delivered by the same way you've gotten delivered. You're talking about, you know, your, your past and, and everything that you got mixed up in, and yet uh, skating has remained a part of your life. Like, you, that you didn't have to that, – that wasn't replaced. Or uh, you, you – it looks – it seems to me from the outside, just following on YouTube and stuff, that you're still passionate about this gift of skateboarding. Um have you been able to come at it from a different angle as a sober Christian? You know, I remember saying to God on my triple-decker bunk bed in prison that I'll give up skating, I'll give up my family, I'll give up, you know, everything, and I'll go to, like, the deserts, I'll go to the Amazon, I'll go to, you know, the jungles, I'll go preach to the tribes, I'll, I'll be a missionary. And I, I was sitting there, and I thought it was this holy moment that I had with God, you know, in county jail, and he's like, Christian, I gave you those things. I gave you skateboarding. Skateboarding for, for has us. exploded almost as, as, a, as a something yeah, that you yeah. can use as a platform. Do you think that the same things that draw people to the gospel 
draw people to skateboarding in some way. Like it's, it maybe uh, young people, the, the community or the transcendence or do you see any overlap there? Well, here, you know, I always say, how do you get people to come to your church? They're like, how do I, you know, invite people? I go, well, you got to make it look like, you know, you are in love with it and you can't wait to get there. And, and when you are like passionate about going people will wonder why it must be good just like how i'm so passionate about going to the skate park i can't wait to go let's plan it all right let's get everybody we're going to meet there now if we were that passionate about church most people are like oh we just got to go to church oh we got to get it over with i can't wait oh how long is it today oh my gosh it's like a half an hour too long like people are like it's like a burden for people you know, and these are like strong Christians. These aren't even, you know, and they're like, I wonder why no one wants to come to my church. When I'm looking at life, I look at it radically, kind of like skateboarding. And I look at it like, you know, I'm going to be, you know, trying to do the best tricks in skateboarding, right? Yeah. It's almost like I want to I wanna be the best that I can be, the most effective and that means that, you know, setting people free, getting people delivered, watching their, their eyes open, their hearts being healed, watching people, you know, get excited about going to church and now changing their lives. And, you know, those, those are the things that are, are radical to me now. Well, that makes me want to get back to church. I miss church really badly during this week. We haven't been able to meet. We're, we're going to have our first service this, this coming weekend. Well, Christian, let me let me ask you one last question. Um, well, actually, two. Uh, first, you sent me a picture. Of, was it you getting? Were you getting a tattoo that said "Hope"? It's love and hope and two ships going towards the cross. Last last question for you, Christian. My my nine year old is a big is a budding skateboarder. What is your What's your advice for him? Well, you know, love what you do and you'll never quit. And that goes for skateboarding. That goes for your faith. You know, you'll never disrespect it. You'll always take care of it. You'll always, you know, protect it. And for me, that's like the bottom line of anything. Hey, Ethan. How you doing, man? Yeah, it's good to see you, man. Good to see you, too. It's <sighs> been a while. Yeah, it's been a long while. Yeah. How you holding up? I am holding up. I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, man. But... I, I know. It's like everybody's everybody's just trying to keep their head above water right now. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, um are you still like homeschooling and running PE class in your backyard? And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, three out of the five kids are doing um, online. Yeah. And, you know, for the most part, they're pretty self-sufficient. You know, the teachers are teaching and they may need help every once in a while. Uh, but for the most part, they're just, they're handling, we just have to make sure, you know, my baby girl, the 11-year-old, is actually doing her work and not um, 
scrolling, um, looking at uh, TikTok videos. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing you were playing. You were Mm -hmm. you were in the league when you had your first kid. Yeah, that was uh, we had Harmony um, my last year with the San Francisco 49ers. Mm. Um, It was season four. I remember like it was yesterday because my contract was up. Aisha was due like three weeks after the season. (laughs) And I didn't know whether or not I would be staying with San Francisco or becoming a free agent and moving somewhere else, you know, in the nation. But, uh, and I, I was also injured, Ethan. I was coming off an injury, going into my last game of um, being a San Francisco 49er. And it, it's a bit of a dramatic story on how it all unfolded. Uh, I remember leaving the house because I was only supposed to play sparingly in that last game because I was coming off a pretty significant knee injury. And I told, I remember telling Aisha, I mean, I was just, I was so emotional. I was so, um, so uh, I was vulnerable because I understood that, you know, this game that I'm about to play in, this one game could really determine whether or not I was going to be able to, you know, stay in one city with a team that I loved and I was familiar with or go to a completely different city. Mm. And um, also, you know, as it relates to, you know, financially, I was taking care of a lot of people. Yeah. My family, Aisha, and I I just had a, um, I was very concerned about (laughs) not being able to take care of them if if my career ended. Yeah. So I was concerned about getting injured again that season ending. But um, I remember leaving the house and I told Aisha, I said, I don't know what's going to happen after today, but, um, you know, I'm going to give it all I got. And I'm thinking I'm giving it all I got for like 20 plays. <laughs> I ended up starting like the whole second half because the two cornerbacks in front of me, the two players in front of me got injured. And uh, I was like, I don't know if I'm ready for this. So, mm-hmm. uh, but and I had one of the best games of my uh, career there in San Francisco. And uh, to make a long story, longer story shorter, <laughs> that ended up uh, giving me the opportunity to choose between a few different teams. And I ended up uh, landing in uh, here in Atlanta wow. with the Falcons. That was something that you sort of mentioned when we were emailing, you were sort of talking about this pressure that um, the players that you're meeting with now are still under that they've got a lot of people that they, they feel for whatever reason, responsible to take care of. Mm -hmm. And you see that still being the case today with, with the the players you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because of the virus, I haven't had a lot of contact, you know, face-to-face contact with them. We haven't spoke a lot because they're in season. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from, you know, during the off-season, it's the same, it's the same cycle. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, and there is such a, a pull and a struggle to, you know, feel, okay, yeah, 
now I have all this money and I experienced the struggle with, you know, my family, parents growing up. Um, now it's my opportunity to take care of them um, solely. And, you know, I look at it a couple of different ways. I don't think there's anything wrong with supporting your family, you know, when you have them. But having the, I guess, the pressure of saying, hey, if I don't get this done, then that family member or those family members won't make it. Mm-hmm. You know, that is something that is not our responsibility yeah. to cover. You know, That's a huge um, weight. Yes. So, yeah, it, uh, it's, just, it's just the same struggle. I was, uh, I was talking to my, my daughters about NFL and what it takes and the burden of it. And what I realized is that they're kind of like, you know, from the beginning, from the dream starting until the dream is over, there are three phases. Mm. The, fir- the first phase is just getting there, getting the opportunity to play in the NFL. And there's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of uh, grinding going on to get there. And then the second phase is once I accomplish this dream, how do I maintain it? How do I continue to live in a way that would uh, allow me to experience the dream that I've lived, uh, that I worked so hard to accomplish? And then that last phase is the phase that I am in now is, okay, what next? What I do after, you know, that dream is lived and um, I, this is real life, you know? Yeah. It's, the meetings are not scheduled. My wife is scheduling meetings, but sometimes <laughs> they don't go the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, when you look back on your career, does it feel like it was just a short blip and now your life after football has been a lot longer or does it feel like the opposite or what? Ethan, uh, the first thing you said, um, it seemed like that NFL career went so fast. Hmm. You know, I can remember key moments. I can remember moments um, highs and lows, but uh, as it relates to um, man, just from the year two thousand to through two thousand and nine, it's it seemed like uh, it flew by. But right now, the the phase that I'm going through now, it seems like okay, this is uh, if I could relate it to track and field and a four hundred, like the NFL was like the it was just a start, and I'm going around the first curve, the one hundred meter. And now I feel like I'm coming out of that curve and I'm running down the back stretch and it's a floating type mm. of uh, feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned um, when you, when you first came out, when you were finished uh, with your career that you struggled with depression and um, that it was just a huge um, overwhelming sense of identity lost. Yeah. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I started playing football when I was 10 years old. You know, I begged my dad to sign me up, and he signed me up for uh, a little – I mean, Ethan, this – I'm telling you, it probably could have competed for the worst Little League team, at least in the Houston, Texas area. <laughs> I, I'm telling you the truth. We only practice with nine guys. 
And we played sometimes with nine, maybe 10 guys. I don't remember a game when we played with 11 guys. And so we were outnumbered most of the time we played. And I played one of the worst positions as a little league player, and that was running back. And um, so I was getting beat up constantly, but there was this drive for me to continue to, you know, earn and gain and just uh, be the best that I could be. So I started when I was 10, fast forward until, you know, I retired at, uh, I think I was, uh, I was around 30 years old. And when I got done, when it was all said and done, I felt like, oh man, okay. You know, that was cool, but like what next? You know, what what will make me important? Like what what will make me significant? What will make me feel the way that I felt when I made an exception or made a big hit or made a big play? And there was nothing that satisfied that, you know? Mm. And even the feedback from the fans, Ethan, is crazy, you know. I craved even negative feedback, the booze, because mm. at least if I had the booze, then I had something to give me feedback. At least I could get better right. you know, doing it. At least I can learn from it and strive to get better. So I went through a season of very um, – I mean, I was just low. I was depressed. Um, I was anxious. My wife is very, very strategic. She's a planner. And she had the house in order, you know, with all the kids, the carpools and the drop-off, everything was in order. So I come in and I felt like at times I was messing up the plan because mm-hmm. the kids had bedtime at eight and I wanted to, you know, spend time with them because I didn't really get that time when I was playing. I was there, but I physically, but mentally, I was thinking about how I was going to prepare, how I was going to beat this next team. Mm-hmm. So I came in and, you know, kind of, you know, it wasn't on purpose, but I was just like, man, I, I just want to, you know, be a part. I want to be significant. So that experience of not being able to call my shot, not being able to finish the NFL career on my own terms. Mm-hmm. Like there's, it's very rare. Like the, the Tony Gonzalez's, the Jerry Rice's, the, you know, you name them, um, all the, you know, Hall of Famers, they they usually get to call their shot, say, you know what, I'm done. They they step off stage when yes. when they want to. Yes. Yeah. They they're done singing. You know, they put the microphone back in the stand and <laughs> they're done. But most of us, you know, like we get either dragged off or yeah. booed off. Right. Know? And <laughs> right. I was uh I was kind of booed off because I was injured the last few years. So that led me to counseling. Mm. And um, man, it was, it was Christian counseling. I grew up, you know, in a in Christian family, you know, very religious. So I had, you know, what I called, I had a righteous consciousness mm-hmm. um, with some relationship, but the relationship that I had with God was uh, skewed. It was performance-based. Mm. You know, if I did this, then God would, you know, he would grant me this. Even through my NFL career, I felt like if I had a good, you know, a, a, a good week, you know, and I didn't lust or I didn't have a, a angry thought to somebody, then, oh, yeah, I'm going to have a good game. Mm. I'm going to have a good game. And that way of thinking was flipped upside down so many times. But I just believe that, you know what, I'm not trying hard enough. 
Hmm. You know, I'm not doing enough to get God's satisfaction to grant me with the prosperity and the blessings that I really want. And Mm -hmm. this is me being an NFL player, making more money than I've ever made, you know, in my entire life, but it wasn't enough. Yeah. You just said it right there. I mean, I think that's the sort of religion that you see on TV with professional sports, you know, like Mm -hmm. the the glory goes to God in the end zone, you know, Mm -hmm. um, or in the post game after a victory. But, um, Mm -hmm. But the God we worship is a God that takes in losers and, yes. and chooses yeah. and chooses the, the not good enoughs, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I guess that makes me want to segue to your job now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, who, who has time for that message? Like who has time for that message in the NFL? I mean, Ethan, it's, I'll say this. I have developed more deep and meaningful relationships with the players and coaches with the Atlanta Falcons through tough times and suffering way more than any victories or wins. Hmm. And what I believe so deeply, um, and it's been my experience, is that even with my relationship with the father is that he has been so present. I have experienced him being so much more present in my downs than I have in my ups. Mm-hmm. And, and I think some of that is that, you know, when I've had the ups and the successes, I didn't feel like I was good enough to even deserve it, you know, mm-hmm. but, I, I truly believe that, you know, like through suffering and pain and hurt and the losses. I remember sitting in my locker one time, even, and I, I remember it's like yesterday. I was, uh, we had played the Cincinnati, we were playing the Cincinnati Bengals and we won the game. You know, it was, uh, we went into overtime. We actually won the game. I was sitting in my locker and I was almost in tears because I felt like, man, we could have ended that game earlier if I would just made that interception or Mm -hmm. I would make that tackle before that receiver scored. I remember, and I was like, why am I even doing this? I'm not even good enough. And this was year, it was at least my fifth or sixth year in the NFL. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just the, um, yeah, the relationships that you has time for the messages. Usually those that are in pain, usually those guys that, are hurting, injured Hmm. Um, coaches, you know, just struggling with should I continue to coach or should I, you know, give this up and do something different so I can really see my family. I don't need to see my family. Hmm. So those guys, I believe God uh, gives the opportunity to, you know, share about his goodness. And it's not about you striving to accomplish something on earth. Yeah, you got to work hard. Yeah, you got to. You know, you got to put in your hours in order to take care of your family, but that does not define who you are. Hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, just thinking about, I mean, the the sort of ladder climbing God, you know, the God that is only, you know, one rung ahead of you. If you if if you can only, you know, 
sin less or um, work harder and, and then how cruel the world seems and how cruel God seems if Mm -hmm. you are one of those players that is perpetually injured, you know, you, you just can't seem to get off the IR and um, yeah, then, then where is God? If that's your God, Um, that's, that's really hard to, to face. Yeah. It is. One one of the teams that I played on had a sign above the locker room or above the locker room door and it said durability is more important than ability. And I remember not wanting to go into that locker room because I wanted to always be characterized as a durable player but I could not stay healthy for anything. So I walked through those doors more than I wanted to. And I just felt like, you know what, you know, I guess, you know, it is subtle, but, you know, looking back on it, and I didn't really realize it back then, but looking back on it, I thought, you know what, I'm not a stable player and I'm not good enough. And see what I believe, like as it relates to identity, it doesn't stop at, just I'm not a good employer, employee, mm-hmm. you know, dad, you know, friend. It's like, I am not good enough. Mm-hmm. I am not good enough. And that is, I think that's where I believe the healing starts is where God is able to come in like, yeah, you're not, but I am. Mm-hmm. I am. And I am through my son, Jesus. And you are, you better off, way better off than you really believe you are. Mm. So when, um, when did that happen for you, Jason? Like when, when did, when did the, I mean, you were sort of thrown off the ladder. Um, you were forced off the stage and, but is that, is that when it happened or? Yeah, it was definitely, it was in, it was in one of those counseling sessions that I had. Um, after I got done playing in the NFL. And it took me maybe a year or two afterwards because I was still trying to figure it out myself. I was still wanting to be in control. And when I went to counseling and I was sitting in a session and uh, I was just, you know, I was telling the counselor at the time, you know, all my issues and my problems and, you know, wanting him to fix them. You know, give me give me an answer so I can get this thing right. And um, he never gave me an answer. He just I always referred back to the truth. And he asked me what did I believe, and I really couldn't answer him. You know, I gave what I was taught. Mm-hmm. You know, but I didn't really mean it. You know, it didn't come from the heart. And he said this. He said. You know, we were talking about marriage, and he said, you know what? You can't love your wife. And I was like, what do you mean? I love my wife with all my heart. I, I did this, I did that, I did that, and, you know. And he said, you, you don't have the ability to truly love her. He said, the only way that you can truly be loved to her is that you receive God's love, and he loved her through you. And that that was one thing that blew my mind. And I was like, what? How how does that even happen? And then, so that kind of got me teared up, like emotional. I'm like, you're just kind of tearing down 
my belief system. And then he said, you know, your NFL career didn't go the way you wanted to because you didn't end up being a Pro Bowl player, right? And I was like, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I bought plane tickets for me and my wife even to Hawaii this season before I had this dream of being a Pro Bowl player because I wanted to experience what Hawaii was like before I got there. Hmm. And I was like, you know, we're going to experience this because next year it's, uh, we're going to be there. Hmm. So, I, you know, we did that. And then for it not to happen, I was like, man, so what did I do wrong? How did I get, you know, what did I do to cause um, it to not be able to accomplish this dream? So, mm. I, you know, I, began, I was just telling him all this stuff. And he said, you know, I have something to say to you. And I believe that God wants me to say it. So he had my undivided attention. He said, you're, you know what? You're not good enough. He said, but God, for some reason, believes that you're his Pro Bowl player. Mm-hmm. He believes that you're the apple of his eye because of what he allowed his son to go through on the cross for you. And man, tears were just rolling down mm-hmm. my cheeks. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't even speak because that was very different. It was, it was just the, almost the complete opposite of what I've been living. Mm-hmm. And um, it was in that moment where I finally figured out it's like, it's not about what I can do or what I can accomplish. It's about what Jesus did for me on the cross that allows me to be who I am as significant Mm. as a son and a child of God. Mm. And from that point, everything else is just an opportunity to experience Mm. God's love and grace. And Mm. I, man, it, that was just like, man, Hmm. what? And I took that, I put it in a bottle and I drank it. And (laughs) (laughs) I, I was just like, man, this is, I said, Hmm. that's all I need. Yeah. But that was the moment where um, I believe God spoke to me through that counselor and said, Hmm. you know, you're mine, you know, as inconsistent and as, you know, as uh, as doubtful you can be your mind. Mm. I'm right. your shepherd, you're my sheep. Is it weird now to be back in that world? I mean, you've been back in it for, did you say like eight years, 10 years as a chaplain? Yeah, it's been 10 years. So, I mean, it's sort of like going back to the wound, you know, like, mm-hmm. is that is that weird or, or is it healing? Yeah. Uh, you're right, Ethan. It, especially at first, it was a wound. It was a wound. Um, the Falcons were the first team I experienced being cut hmm. from, being rejected. Hey, you're not good enough. Um, we don't have a plan for you in our organization, so we're going to let you go. And that was my first time experiencing, experiencing that as an NFL player. And I just felt rejected. And I felt like, man... I'm going to show you guys wherever I go. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I left with a chip on my shoulder and I was going to prove to them that they made one of the biggest mistakes. And um, so going back into that as a chap, I'm supposed to be the minister to minister to these people who rejected me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, one of the guys that is one of the guys that was there. So I had a workout. 
with the Falcons like about three years later. And I went back in ready to, you know, show them, hey, I'm even better than I was, you know, when you cut me. And before that workout, they were like, hey, we don't need you. We're just doing this because somebody um, called in a favor for you. And I was like, oh, wow. So I was like, should I work out or should I not? I mean, because it seems like it's already decided. So I worked out and um, because I'd already put the icy hot on my legs and my legs were warm. I was like, let me just go ahead and (laughs) use what I got. (laughs) So, um, but they sent me packing after that workout. And the guy who was in charge at the time was one of the guys that was in charge of the Falcons when I came back for um, in the chaplain role. So yeah, it was a wound and it was awkward. Um, Probably more for him than it was for me because I really didn't care. Now I was going there for one reason and that was to find somebody who went through what I went through at that time. And I was like, I just want to, I want to be what the chaplain for San Francisco 49ers was for me. Hmm. And he was this, I, I mean, I remember that I talked about that injury, you know, before that last game with San Francisco. Well, the chaplain for San Francisco was right there as I was bawling my eyes out on the training room table. And he was the one that said, yeah, you know, pick your head up. You know, we're going to get through this together. And the team still allowed me to travel during that season because this was at the beginning of the season when I was injured. The team allowed me to travel with with them um, all the away games. And um, the chaplain there, his name was Earl Smith, he made sure that I just didn't stay in my room and soak. We went out to dinner. We walked around the nearest mall, and he showed me something that I really hadn't experienced before. And that was just somebody caring about me in a way where it was no – arterial motive you know it was nothing that you know he wanted from him other than me just coming out of the tank he just mm-hmm. wanted me to be okay and um he had four kids of his own he was the um chaplain of the san quentin prison system he was chaplain of the 49ers of course and he was chaplain of the golden state warriors mm-hmm. and he was chaplain for san francisco uh, giants so, and for him to take time to spend with me was just, it blew my mind. Hmm. And so that was, um, that was kind of what my goal was going into the chapel. And I said, man, I, I want someone to experience that type of love and care hmm. um, that, that um, Earl gave me. Hmm. Wow. Well, if you don't, if you don't mind me asking, yeah, what's it, mm-hmm. what's it been like just the last few months trying to be a chaplain in the midst of, I mean, are, I, I take it you're not traveling with the team. Um, no. What's your sense of how the guys are doing and what, what it's been like for them in this weird time? Yeah, it's been hard for them. And it's been hard for a few reasons. One of the reasons why is because preparing to play a football game is one thing but to preparing to play a football game and there are no fans in the crowd, 
it's really tough. Yeah, there's none of that, that feedback you were talking no, about. There's no feedback, you know. So it's all about internal motivation and you're playing for your team, you know. Uh, so that that can be tough. I, you know, I've talked to them, you know, some of them, I was like, you know, I couldn't imagine that because one of the things that got me going was hearing the crowd, whether I was people home or away. So, you know, that's, that's, that can be challenging. The Falcons also are in a coaching change. You know, one of the coaches, the head coach, uh, got fired. And uh, he was very beloved, very, you know, personal. But, you know, you know how this world works. If you don't get the job done, you're held responsible. Hmm. So he was held responsible and, you know, he got, he got fired. So there's a new coach. And so they're transitioning you know, for that. So they got a lot of, a lot of changes going on, a lot of transitions. So I know, you know, it's tough for a lot of them. You know, some of them were away from their family for a significant amount of time. Cause not like the NBA, it's not like they're in the bubble, but they, uh, not, I, I say that they took precautions to not, you know, bring whatever could be in the facility home to their family. Yeah. Yeah. So are you are you just texting and zooming and doing doing all that? Yeah, texting and um you know before the beginning of the season, right when COVID started, um a buddy of mine, uh, you know, he kind of spearheaded this Zoom meeting. Um and we had a couple players, a few players come in and kind of like just share their story. So that was really, you know, it was good because some certain aspects of their story I had never heard before. Hmm. So it was cool to hear uh, hmm. hear from them in that way. Jason, you gave me more than more than we could even use. Um, thanks for giving me forty five minutes and telling me your story again. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Ethan. Thank you for inviting me. You really have a unique perspective on a slice of life that is idolized by so ma- so many people and. There are people in the mockingbird sphere who are winners in other worlds, you know, who have who have been at the top of their game in a different game. And I think what's so cool about Mockingbird being focused on law and gospel or the grace message is that everybody falls. <laughs> Everybody's in the ditch at some point and yeah. um and everybody finds Jesus there. And, yeah. um, yeah, you're never really the same after you found Jesus in the ditch rather than at the top of the ladder. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Thank you, Ethan. And man, God bless you and your family and God bless Mockingbird, man. Um, Thanks. Thank you guys for what you guys do. And I've, uh, I still got my devotional <laughs> and I pull it out every once in a while to read it. And man, it does the same thing every time it encourages me. Oh, and so man. I really appreciate you guys.